I couldn't be more proud to introduce this reading um, because it is to celebrate the birth of a new book into the world, which is always a thing, let me rephrase that, which is usually a thing to be celebrated. <laughs> there are some books that shouldn't be celebrated. This one should be. Um, this is a, an important anthology called Feminine Rising, and it is edited by two graduates of this very program, Laura Lillibridge and Andy, Andrea, sorry, on the, on the cover, Andrea Feckety. So uh, Andy is going to do the introductions of the readers, and Laura is going to sum up things at the end. You don't want to hear from me. You came to hear from them. So allow me to turn the microphone over to Andy. Andy? Thank you, Doug. It is strange being back here since graduating a really long time ago. These are some of the most wonderful teachers in this program, and you guys who are current students are really super lucky. If you don't know that, then I am telling you. Be happy to be here. Um, so I'm just going to read a little bit from my introduction because I tend to ramble. So um, about how this book came about and um, etc. So Feminine Rising with Forward by Amy Hudock and my co-editor, Larry Lillibridge, is here today to read as well. Giving Story to the Light. I was born in a socioeconomically disadvantaged region, the West Virginia Coalfields. Growing up, I witnessed devastating injustices related to women and the poor. I didn't have language to describe my feelings and ideas surrounding my life as a holler girl, where if you didn't have a car, you didn't get a job because no public transit existed and nothing was in proximity but necessities. Although I was one of the lucky kids born to parents who went to college, the first generation in both their families to do so, I still lived in an atmosphere of oppression and underprivilege and suffering, especially among women. But instinctively, even as a teenager, I knew concepts that I didn't have words for, like sexism, empowerment, disenfranchisement, misogyny, feminism, income inequality, justice, and multi-generational poverty, especially. Um, I didn't have words as tools to describe my experience. I was a poet from the age of seven because I needed words. I just skipped a whole line, sorry. I was a poet from the age of seven because I needed words I did not have. That year, I developed difficulty controlling my emotions and expressing myself after a bout of childhood bacterial meningitis. And I set out to speak to the world about these intense mood swings and feelings. But because of my background growing up, I never thought anybody would listen to me. Women and girls who feel voiceless or invisible because of disability or underprivileged, abusive environments, or some other cause need story. To me, story is the telling of whatever ways of knowing a woman has at her disposal. As a child of the coal fields, my ways of knowing were instinctual, also set by example by the women in my family and the women in my neighbor's family. I grew up as a teenager wanting to be an author. There were no granddaughters to Mexican and Hungarian immigrants like me. Black-headed Catholic collar girls from West Virginia coal fields weren't on TV, right? And at my high school, they weren't in books. I was learning about Emily Dickinson and Sylvia Plath. I didn't know anything about Appalachian writers or black writers or Southern writers or Native American writers. I didn't see myself. And I'm just skipping. I don't want to read too long. Um, 
I finally saw myself in the women that I read when I got to Marshall University, and I met Amy Hudock, our forward author, and I was her intern and helped start the Women's Studies Certificate Program at Marshall in 1998. She showed me all these women voices I'd never seen before, and suddenly I felt like maybe my stories mattered, maybe I could belong somewhere. I saw my stories in their novels and poetry, and suddenly I mattered outside of my own region. That same year, in 1998, I took Appalachian literature and marveled at the existence of this kind of literature, of which I'd never heard of. I learned the poetry of someone named Dr. Irene McKinney, former poet laureate of West Virginia, and as you know who she is, she started this program here. I was in awe of her work. She talked about coal mining, which is where I came from, death, love. She talked about my West Virginia. I saw my story and I was transformed. And fate would intervene in 2011 and I would be accepted to a new MFA program that year at West Virginia Wesleyan College founded by none other than Irene McKinney. She'd become my mentor and friend. And in 2003, she has a quote in the front of a book that I used to teach as an adjunct professor. And the book is called, Listen Here, Women Writing in Appalachia. <clears throat> and that quote that I love is, I'm a hillbilly, a woman, and a poet, and I understood early on that nobody was going to listen to anything I had to say anyway, so I might as well just say what I want to. <laughs> These words could have been my own when I was a teenager. They were my mantra as an adult. I'll say what I want to. She passed away after my only knowing her one year. But her influence, both in 98 and 2011, changed me in my relationship with story and my relationship with myself. A specific event led to the inspiration for this book. I experienced a traumatic event in 2014, another one related to my gender, as most women in this room have experienced. And I felt silenced and angry. I worked with a West Virginia delegate and attempted to pass a bill to protect women. It did not pass. And I had this modest list of achievements throughout my history in the women's studies departments, and none of it felt like it was enough. I was just angry, and I was stomping around my house, and this is not in the essay, I'm just talking. And I was furious, and I wanted to do something about what had happened, and I couldn't legally, and so I said, what can I do? I can speak. And then I thought, I'm a writer. I already talk too much. <laughs> but a bunch of other women in a book talking about their truth and not just about their, you know, oppression and the horrible things that's happened to them. I think a lot of anthologies with women's works kind of tend toward talking about victimization. And I had this in my head, what would happen if I took to the internet and wrote something on a website that said, when do you feel powerless? And when do you feel empowered? When are you angry? And when are you sad? Tell me about being a woman. Tell me what that means. Tell me what it's like. I'm going to pretend like I know nothing. And you talk to me. Send me essays and poetry, but they all have to be true, true stories. And then nobody wanted to send me anything. <laughs> My co-editor's smiling like, I remember. In 2014, we couldn't get any work. Um, and I remembered Lara, who I went to school with here at Westland. And I reached out and said, I need help because I really want to do this book. I have this idea. I think it'll be therapeutic for me and for every woman who's in the book if we can get it published. And will you help me? And she's like, sure. <laughs> so, so she did. And we begged people for a long time. 
right? We sent emails to people and said, will you send us something? We love your work. And they'd say, oh, no, you know, you're going to sit on this wonderful essay and it'll never get published. I don't think I should give you anything. But then eventually we got stuff from writers from 12 nations, um, 70 women, uh, poet laureates, more than one. But then even, right, I just, I'm so proud. But even better, you know what else we got? We got stuff from people who don't write for a living. We received uh, poetry from Ellen Bass, but then we also received poetry from a waitress in Tucson, Arizona. You know what I mean? It wasn't this academic thing. It was just women talking and who do it well. So now I feel like I'm rambling, so I'm going to wrap up. Anyway, so that's how this happened, and I'm so happy to be here to introduce these amazing women voices in the book. Rachel Hicks, uh, Tuesday Taylor, Jessica Wagner, and Cheryl Denise. And unfortunately, Mary Stike and Lisa Manny couldn't be here, but anyway, I'm just gonna shut up. So I hope that this book brings you guys the feeling of empowerment and just joy that it has me. And I feel like a part of me has been healed. Like story has always done, right? So. Thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel Hicks. I'm gonna read your bio before you come up here, Rachel. Okay. Really, you can tell I do this a lot. Rachel Hicks is a teacher, an independent bookstore worker. She enjoys old typewriters, even older books, and indoor gardening. She received her MFA in poetry from West Virginia Wesleyan College and her MA in English from Marshall University. Her work has appeared in the Pikeville Review, Steal the Journal, and many others. She can usually be spotted in Charleston, West Virginia. Welcome, Rachel Hicks. <laughs> It's so nice to be here and it feels super surreal to be on this side of it. So thank you guys for having us and thank you, Laura and Andy. This has been just such a cool experience. So I'm happy to be here. I'll be reading um, a couple that are in the book um, and also a couple other ones. This first one is called Paper Thin Girls. Paper thin girls rip in dark waters, tear to time in threes. She tells me that burnt hair has a funny smell. Paper girls hold hands. If cut, they bleed. Their blood was once blue. Did you know that your blood starts out like an ocean too? Red seeps quickly into paper, newsprint more than others. Headlines and conversations, horoscopes and weddings all fall apart in tiny hands. No more paper mache today, please. I think the masks are finished. Let me unfold my paper very professionally. I did print this off at FedEx. It's very high quality paper, actually. I'm just saying. So, there's that. This next one um, is also um, in the collection and it's called The Biopsy. When nurses whisper and tell me to wait, when some young blonde girl won't look at me in the eye but will only say, questions must be directed to the doctor, 
That's when conversations happen in long hallways, muted syllables, few words poking out and making their way under the door. Well, it's her age, not sure. Mumble, mumble. The door slightly ajar, I sit on white paper that wrinkles and squeaks with every small movement echoing loudly off blank walls. Naked from the waist down and wondering if I should have shaved, my pale chicken legs shake. A shooting range in front of me, large utensils to pry me open. Four different bottles that will soon hold four pieces of me. Me, me, me. I make it all about me, but when it's mine in size that will soon be up for display, I can't help but think of other times when I loved unicorns and drew long blonde ladies on construction paper. I used to think that walls could actually talk. Maybe I still do. If it's true, then they could also morph and manifest into that one white unicorn I've always thought about, one that will stand and wait for my weak body to get up from this long table and ride away into a sky full of plump pink ether clouds. I walked across campus, I'm a little winded. This one, not in the collection, but here for you. Um, and this one's called Meds and Breakfast. That one Valentine's Day morning, I looked anxiously at the cork board to see if the nurses had added any sort of paper heart, drawing about love, candy, anything, but it was just another day. Today, we are making collages about things that make us happy. The counselor said, bit too joyfully, stretching out every single sound of each word. Standing up there in her, in her jean dress, one that I swear my language teacher from the 90s had, <laughs> she loudly and slowly repeats the topic. Things that make us happy. We aren't allowed scissors and we have to use our hands to tear out the photos like a three-year-old working on their fine motor skills. The old magazines stacked off kilter in the center of each table produce intricate and bizarre responses from people aged 18 to 80 in this room. Photos of Elizabeth Taylor, realistic-looking realistic baby dolls, Kate Moss, cigarettes, guns, and the beach. Nikki sits across from me, points to a picture of a Christmas tree, asking if I want it. I don't. I'm not trying to be mean towards her. She's the only friend I have here. The first night in the smoking room, after standing in line to lean in and light that cigarette, she loudly talked about how she and her mom discussed vibrators before she arrived here. She wanted to know if I was going to bring my toy. Her accent and furious laughter was the only thing cracking through the smoke rings and the awkwardness of that room. Today, instead of tearing out pictures for her happiness collage, Nikki picks at stitches on her left wrist, the one she tried to slice open with what she described as Eh, what are those hot pink Barbie-looking razors? The razor, plus the bottle of blue benzo she took, combined with her long hair, made her seem like some kind of fractured fairy tale character. Realizing then I focus on others a lot. A doctor may say I'm avoiding things. I go back to my paper tearing like I'm supposed to and remind my lungs what real air tastes like and how the morning used to feel before someone knocked and sang the phrase, meds and breakfast. Mm. And for my last performance, um, this one's called Calculations. I can never decide what to eat for lunch or dinner, but I do know that I'm getting tired of memories, especially ones that cling longer than others. 
muddy vision, these memories hang like heavy wallpaper. I suppose if we live in a three-dimensional world, with time being the fourth dimension, it's all relative, as they say. But what does that even mean? That in this blip of a timeline we call our lives, that there is no before or after, closer or farther, only right now, or it simply just isn't? I was never quite good at my math facts. Perhaps if I was, I could muster an equation to figure it all out. An algorithm full of various blended autumns, hot drug summers, winters of zephyrs, February meltdowns and poinsettias, spring bird songs with morning cigarettes, smoke that curls around my face like Medusa snakes. But this equation creating is hard. I sit and I sit, reminding myself to look at this silly life and ask if its stories deserve to be shared. Or is it just like a blip, the fallen tree scenario? If a life happens and no one fills it, if there is no static or remorse, did it even happen? All I know is that the drugstore around the corner is still open, and we all flock to it like letters, vowels, and consonants on my tongue. Thank mm. you. Thank you so much. I am very pleased to introduce our next reader, Cheryl Denise Miller. She grew up in Elmira, Ontario. She is the author of two books of poetry, What's in the Blood and I Saw God Dancing, both published by Cascadia. Her poetry CD is Leaving Eden. She and her husband, Mike Miller, are a part of the intentional community of Shepherdsfield near Philippi, West Virginia. The community raises a small flock of Jacob sheep and sells wool blankets and yarn. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Cheryl Denise Miller. God, according to Pastor Smucker, likes pretty women in floral skirts and a glory of long blonde curls. On a Sunday afternoon, the smell of a roast in the oven reassures God and man that everything is in order. God shines his face upon women with soft pink Bibles who go to women's groups, talk marriage and children, play piano, sew bandages to send overseas. He likes Maybelline women who make jello salads for carry-ins. God is happiest when we're pregnant. As long as we remember the seed is our husband's and there's no correlation between creation and birthing. God sends men when we weep to stroke our foreheads and kiss our hair. He needs men to feel strong. God prefers us skinny, in fancy dresses with matching accessories. We are his temple. God wants us silent in business meetings, offering lemon squares and soothing herbal teas. God likes our breasts, pointing heavenwards as we pray <laughs> and do the dishes. <laughs> Thank you. 
I don't believe Pastor Smuck. <laughs> Swallowing. In Mrs. Ellis's class, when it was time for our test, with that giant clown poster, with all the colors we were supposed to know, I got stomach sick, that easy to slip into sick, that struck again in nursing school, the 6 a.m. vomiting, then walking erect, blue pinstripes, that white starched cap. During med pass, my hands shook, breaking the glass vial of Dilaudid, cutting my palm. In peds, all those tiny calculations, and that boy with his gangrious foot, and me mixing powders and solutions, hanging little IV bags, counting drops, questioning my math, interrupting my sleep. When I was 25 and freshly engaged, my future aunt asked, lemonade or iced tea? And I turned to my fiance for the answer, drank the tea I did not like. After the open mic reading, the poet I love danced right in front of the guitar man. My legs ached to join her, but stood like pillars, immobile before the whiskey breathing prof, criticizing my poems, standing so close like he might kiss me while I swallowed the words I wanted to scream. At 45, I was going to be the only nurse in the county making home visits by motorcycle. On a tiny toy Honda, I drew giant figure eights in the field, then graduated to dirt roads. But I imagined men in pickup trucks laughing at my efforts. And then that slight incline that rose like Everest while I whispered, under my helmet, before placing an ad in the trader, one slightly used Honda 200. <laughs> Someday, I'll be 95. A porcelain-skinned nurse will enter my room without knocking, hand me a small paper cup with two oval pink pills and one blue. I will think, these are not mine. She will hand me a glass of water, confident in her white uniform, shiny name tag, shimmery smile. I'll hesitate. She'll nod. I'll shake the pills on my tongue. Swallow. And our next reader is um, Tuesday Taylor, and she's an author, educator, and public speaker, recipient of the Robert F. K. Visionary Awards, Miss Tuesday, as her students call her, established and facilitates youth programs specializing in behavioral management, summer enrichment, and visual and performing arts throughout West Virginia and Ohio. She earned her degree in communication from West Virginia State University and is a creator and host of the multimedia show, What's Real West Virginia. Her new poetry collection is called Tomboy Blues and is available online. Please welcome Tuesday. I'm sorry, I gotta pull up my pants. Sorry, I ain't got a lot back here, okay. 
All right, so if I get too loud, please tell me because I get excited. Lipstick and earrings. Long hair, never wore any wigs. Bold, brassy, sassy, and a little trashy. He is a she with an attitude taught to him by old movies, calendar pictures of pinup girls, him wearing pink lipstick, pinup curls, painted nails, satin panties, and lace bras. He teach me, men will try to get your cookies if you let them. <laughs> Sit like a lady, watch me cross at the ankle, not at the knee. Sit with your knees together. Dresses that hung to the floor, drag shopping with my uncle, only my brother and I can call him uncle, Uncle Jimmy She. Prudence, Diana Lovejoy, a queen. Pumps in every color, he would let me line them up in his closet pretending they were my shoes. Pantyhose with baby powder. That's how you get them on, he said. Foundation, cake it on, the lights are bright when I'm on stage. Blush, you'll never need. Pretty pink cheeks. A man taught me how to be a woman. Eyeshadow, liner, mascara, and lipstick. Tuesday, you'll never need lip liner. Yes, men, most will cheat. It's not you, it's them. Never kiss on the first date, a girl's gotta have standards. Don't sell it on the first date, imagination is all men want. Lipstick and earrings that dangle, falsies I would put under my shirt pretending they're my own breast. You're gonna grow into such a beautiful woman, said to me by Miss Gay West Virginia. He'd watch me transform, I'd watch him transform, paralyzed by the masterpiece of cross-dressing. Be who you are and be proud, he said. God and I have talked. He made me a queen. Men will adore you just like I said, like, just like I do, said to me by a man who lives his life as a woman. As a little girl, I'd run downstairs introducing him. Now presenting the queens of all queens, Prudence Diana Lovejoy, my Uncle Jimmy She. I'm gonna do this like this. I feel like you talk. All right. Thank you very much. Jerry West by West. You're either slinging crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot. Biggie Smalls. Jerry West by West by West. He's from the West by West of Virginia. You're no ball player if you don't practice in the off season. Where I come from, ball is all we have. Ask my Cleveland scholars who say I'm country, but if you're from Boone County, you think I'm city. Who is the man on the NBA logo? And these city boys don't know. My scholars remind me of the boys I played ball with. These city boys different though. They don't sleep with basketballs on their pillow. They don't practice their follow through with an imaginary ball. They have no concept of, you a scrub, you gotta earn your right to play here. Jerry West, by West, by West. He's from the West, by West of Virginia. It's in between Chilean and I want that NBA money, pass me the rock. I want that NBA money, pass me the rock. Shot, dribble, pass, shot, dribble, pass, shot, dribble, pass, shot, shot. And those city boys don't know how us country boys do. Professional sports leads our youth to believe athletics are the only way out. I want that MBA money. Buy expensive clothes, get my mama a house, and get us out of West Virginia. You ain't no ball player. Are you a ball player or you just play ball? You no ball player if you don't practice in the off season. Where I come from, hustling is all we have. Jerry West, by West, 
by west. He's from the west, by west, by west. I want that NBA money, pass me the rock. I want that NBA money, pass me the rock. Shot, dribble, pass. Shot, dribble, pass. Shot, shot. Those city boys don't know what us country boys do for that rock. This is about one of my most favorite people in the world, and his name is Thomas. Thomas. He talked about aliens. I listened. He made the best ham sandwiches, gray hair, hat corn, oil stained, chewed nails. He's always nervous. So the government's going to get him only if the aliens don't find him first. He talked about J. Edgar Hoover, JFK, and aliens. Said he shaves his knuckle hair, his fingertips too. I might want to rob a bank one day. Little chicken legs, teeth that fall out every day. He talked about aliens. I always listened. He made the best ham sandwiches. Won't do anything the man says. You want lettuce, tomato, onions, grilled bread? Yes, sir. That's why I do anything for you, dear. You give me respect. Always, Thomas. He said if the aliens pick me up, they'll bring me right back. I talk too much. <laughs> we, we talked about spaceships, enlightenment, humanity. I listened to everything he said. Thomas made the best ham sandwiches, and thank you very much. I've never introduced anybody before, sorry. You know, I don't, I don't mean no harm to that. All right, next we have uh, Jessica Spreel. Am I saying that right? Okay, I'm so sorry. Okay, <laughs> is an assistant professor of English at Alderson Broadus University in Philippi, West Virginia, and graduated of the Low Residency MFA program at Wesleyan, West Virginia Wesleyan College. She is the poetry editor for the Hartwood Literary Magazine in association with the MFA at West Virginia Wesleyan College. Jessica is a Pushcart nominee whose poetry was appeared in Bruant Prime Magazine, Pikeville Review, Still, the Journal and the Traveling Appalachians Review. She's the founder and curator of the Woodstock Wednesday Reading Series. Please, everybody, welcome Miss Jessica. Hello. I'll echo the sentiment. It is surreal to be here on this side. Thank you, Doug. All right, I will start with one from the book. Um, so only a handful of you would be here, um, were here to have remembered perhaps, uh, Ellen Hagen, the poet, uh, came and did this really amazing seminar one morning uh, called Mapping the Body. So we're up in EA21, lying flat on our backs, imagining a blue light traveling through the tops of our head and eventually working their way out through our feet. Uh, this, this poem came from that, and you'll, you'll see where I landed. <laughs> it, has a, it has an alternate title, I'll tell you at the end. After years of being told, I have the body of a 12-year-old boy. I prayed for them. God, I know this probably doesn't seem very important, but I anointed them with fenugreek oil and smelled like Indian food for a week. God, please, just a little bigger. Maybe let them bounce ever so slightly when I jump on a trampoline. But no. Bee stings. Mosquito bites. Sup, olive oil. 
Fuck you, Miranda. Your barely be-breasts lifted and smashed together inside your Mary-Kate and Ashley bra. You handing me a tube of hydrocortisone cream. Do you get a triple A discount? Let's be honest. My tits are pretty goddamn magical. I mean, they don't do much exactly, but I have kept lovers mesmerized for years with mostly these handful, mouthful, smallish meringue peaked perky tits and the occasional home-cooked meal, etc. <laughs> I spent a decade covering them up. The first time I had sex, I didn't take my shirt off because I was afraid they would ruin the moment. Since then, They've felt the night wind out a car window, been on wild display for the open road to see, reveled in summer daylight, delicate pink nipples burned red by sun and baby oil hardened by river water and aloe vera. It's taken me 13 years to stand naked, shameless in front of men and women and mirrors, and it's time I stopped praying over my body, stopped making sacrifices in hopes of a bigger, better temple for lovers to worship, to kneel before and suckle, to feel their lips around my nipple as they whisper, baby, I'm gonna buy you new tits for your birthday. I spread cake icing across my chest instead, stick candles in it, burn them down so wax and sugar roll in hot rivers across my skin. I am celebrating these sweet honey bee stings, these warm blood mosquito bites that swell and ache. These are my breasts and my God, I love, love, love them. <laughs> That earned the alternate title of uh, Your Angry Tits Poem. So. <laughs> All right, I'm going to read a couple more here. We built a house with a blackberry bramble roof, hayfield floor, barbed wire walls. Better than the real thing, we said, plucking holes in the ceiling until light fell through and our lips, teeth, and tongues were stained violet red. Better than the real thing crawling quietly into or out of beds, those rusting, creaking metal cots, those rustling beds of leaves I could not sleep in. The creek ran right through our living room. I climbed the bedroom hillside under shadowing leaves, and though there was no light to turn on, I tried again and again to find it. Not nostalgia. A bath in a kitchen sink in New Jersey. My great-grandmother, now nine years gone, soaked pine sap from my body, small enough still to fit in the wash basin. I might have been three or four that summer. The half-brother I'd watched play peewee football earlier that afternoon pelted my soft skin with rubber bands when she wasn't looking, the first of many hurts, striking with hard intent until my wet body was punctuated with hot welts and he disappeared around the corner shrieking with laughter. Not many years later, that kitchen, the whole duplex, would be engulfed in flames, set ablaze when the neighbor's cat tipped an electric candle onto the cushions of a sofa. It smoldered for hours, they presumed, before flames licked the whole place down. Even then, I understood smoldering, the slow burn of fury, the promise of destruction welling up from somewhere deep and vicious, something neglected, toppled over. My great-grandparents salvaged the irreplaceables. This, I could not fathom. How does anyone have the presence of mind to save anything from something so bent on robbing you of everything? Uh, this is called birth butchery. 
some post-motherhood poems. <laughs> For reasons indeterminable, my body refuses to let go. Cradling the child in its hard bones, it clings to his frame wedged in the rigid canal of my unyielding womb. Soon they will strip me of his small form, lance the abdomen, the muscles, the uterus, grasp head, limb, torso, rip him wailing into the sterile white world, waiting to teach him to breathe without me. Severed cord, stitched, se stitched seam, I shiver, vomit, clenched jaw, here as if I'm underwater, that I've lost too much blood and I think I will likely die. But still I refuse to let go, to relinquish one more thing, not even the unforgiving cries conceived of fear and failure and loss. Emptied, I hold what I still can inside me. And I'll close with this one. Regurgitation. I think the bird on the wet branch must be very glad. Leaning forward, she scans the wormed earth as her babies wait, faithfully, knowing. Weathered clothespins on the line drip last night's rain, and I already know how they feel. Swelled, splintered. The rusted coils would break if provoked, so I will not move them, though they mar the scene with their glaring leftoverness, reminder of forgetfulness or disregard. Better to let them loosen of their own accord. Better yet to hope they refuse. I'll wait, watch this bird, hear her come-and-go song as she flits from tree to ground and back again as I trek in and out, porch, kitchen, until the whole pot of coffee is gone and I fill what feels like hollow bones with warm, black, quick, light, strobe heart, shake the stillness of sleep still heavy inside my chest. My son sleeps upstairs, but I do not know if he knows that I will come when he stirs. I am no bird, but I too am glad, leaning, searching, waiting for sustenance I can no longer keep for myself. What I gather here in solitude, I will carry back to him morning after morning until we both are nourished. Thank you. for words and if you know me you know that really doesn't happen very often <laughs> um, so I want to just give a little um, insight into my experience with this book um, I started here at West Virginia Wesleyan what was it Rachel 2014 2013 and my very first semester was Andy's graduating semester and I had to do my student reading right here in this room in front of that quilt, and I was terrified. And Andrea, she was like this rock star, you know? She was graduating, she had a book already, everyone knew her, and she sat down with me, a virtual stranger, and helped me do my reading. She helped me figure out where to cut it. I was so afraid to read that I made her read it for me because I couldn't do it. And I came up here and I shook and I did my reading and I lived. Um, so to me being back here in this room and this is the first time I've seen her since that semester we did this all online and, and through email um, is, is meaningful to me um, 
this book is, we've had the four poets read. Um, it also has essays, and I know a bunch of you are interested in essays, so I wanted to speak about that for a minute. Um, we have essays on all different um, stages in life. Um, we have essays that are angry. We have essays that are powerful. Um, Cade LeBron, her essay is called Fuck Us Harder. In the prequel, Survivor. I don't feel like a survivor of anything. Sometimes I think the one girl died on a bed in the dorm room on her third day of college. She died in his bed while he was fucking her, raping her, whatever. Another girl was born in her place, and she rose, grasping like a phoenix, and ran from the room. She was a virgin. Nobody had ever fucked her, raped her, whatever. She was brand new, and she stumbled to a different dorm room and collapsed on the floor, and then eventually crawled into the dead girl's bed and fell asleep. And in the morning, she took a shower. We have essays in here. It's about growing up by Penny Perkins. It's called A Girl's Mouth. At some point, all girls have to make peace with their mouths, the things shoved into them, the words kept out of them. At some point, all girls have to make peace with their mouths. Soap. She remembers once having her mouth washed out with soap. Her father did it. He shoved a cake of soap into her mouth and ordered her to bite down. She can't remember, of course, what she might have said to have warranted such a punishment. What can a young girl say that is so filthy to her father, or even in his presence, that she would be made to masticate a meal of soap cake? The taste of soap is bitter, like the experience of growing up as a girl with a mouth. All girls have mouths. All girls regret mouths. This is just a, a little piece from one called The Angry Girl at the Funeral. I'd exploded into adolescence like a suicide vest. The anger boiled so deep that I could not speak to the people closest to me. Rebellion is natural, but when provoked by the poking of an unacknowledged wound, it expands into warfare. The anger saved my life. Every seemingly unfounded act of vitriol wielded at my parents or sister was a day that I avoided self-destruction. But then we have essays about makeup and about shopping for shoes. And this, Lisa Minnie, who's another graduate of the program, um, was another piece that I had specifically asked her to submit um, because I loved it so much. Um, and it, her piece is called Mental Pause. And I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, oh, now I've lost my place. Well, I quickly felt, she's talking about menopause, when I quickly felt relief that I did not suffer all the torturous symptoms listed, I came across one sentence that twisted a cramp of terror in my very soul. Menopause is like puberty backwards. <laughs> oh, dear God, no. Please, no. Images flashed in my mind, two-inch thick maxi pads, plain as day, and the crotches of required gym cotton suits. The beauty and the strength of this book is how the pieces all coexist together. Um, it is not just the angry girl at the funeral. It is also um, the, the laughing of the, oh, please, God, no. Um, and it is the, the conciseness and the distillation of poetry. And then the longer essays, like Anne Pancake has this wonderful one um, called Ice Fight. One, it, it has one of my favorite lines. Um, in my town, there was more than one way to be a girl, but there was only one way to be a boy. 
And working on this, pro on this anthology, it taught me a lot about writing. Um, it taught me a lot about submitting and what the other side of that looks like when we're sending out our pieces over and over again and getting discouraged. And it really taught me that sometimes a piece is a really good piece and it's just not the right piece for a book. And that helped me as a writer have you know, a little bit more courage and be a little bit more okay with getting rejections of my own. But it also taught me about being a woman and it taught me that there is more than one way to be a woman. And to see myself in women of color, to see myself in queer women, to see myself in housewives, um, and for the first time made me feel like I was part of a tribe. So um, like, like Andy said, I'm just echoing that this book meant so much more to me than just um, the, the words. The experience of putting it together was, was absolutely unforgettable. Um, and it was interesting because we wrote this book before Me Too, and it took us two years to compile, compile all of the contributors and then three, sorry, <laughs> and then two more years to find a publisher. And eventually a, a new press, a uh, woman-owned press, um, saw what we saw in the collection, brought it to life. So anyway, I'm not going to take up more of your time. Um, we are all here afterwards for people that want to talk. And thank you so much for coming. Let's keep it going for all of these wonderful readers. Tuesday and Jess and Rachel and Laura and Andy and Cheryl. What a wonderful evening. What a great achievement.